this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindu's in focus podcast i'm anand krishnan your host for today On July 1st, China's Communist Party turns 100. In this podcast, we are looking at how the Communist Party of China got to where it is today, the evolution in its politics, its governing philosophy, its ideology, and increasingly, its turn to nationalism. We are delighted to be joined by Rana Mitter, who is professor of the history and politics of modern China at the University of Oxford, and the author of the excellent book China's Good War. how world war 2 is shaping a new nationalism which addresses some of these themes in this podcast we will look back and forward on the significant political anniversary for china I thought I thought I'd begin by looking at the anniversary of course that's in the news um today the day we are speaking june 29th you saw xi jinping honor 29 people and the choice was quite interesting you had a veteran of the chinese civil war uh, you had a veteran of the korean war and you had xi speaking about this whole communist ethos of of sacrifice and contributing to independence and liberation uh, it it really reminded me of some of the themes of your book um and i was just curious to get your thoughts to see these repeated today what does it tell us about how relevant those themes are in terms of the party's founding myths uh, and does it really have an appeal in 2021 to people at home and i think what that ceremony showed was the continuing importance of history in the way that the chinese communist party thinks about itself and also the way in which that history is used to burnish a narrative which essentially is about the sort of inevitability in the eyes of the party of its eventual victory so you know you've mentioned a couple of those uh, those wars there the the chinese civil war in which um the party was seen to have in its own eyes shown its legitimacy by defeating its nationalist opponents under the former leader chiang kai shek and then the korean war this actually came back into prominence last year in 2020 uh, after a long period of of being a little bit in abeyance because um of course in uh, China the Korean war is not called the Korean war it's called the anti-american war kangmei and during the uh, period obviously of increased tensions between the US and China it has a certain sort of um historical resonance to it in that that sense but i think it is a really important indication that when the party thinks about that 100 years of its own history it sees it as a continuity it sees it really as a narrative that has struggles to overcome of which the wars are clearly some but it doesn't really have reverses in the way that it thinks about it and i think that's a large part of what the message that was being put forward uh, uh, today had to uh, had to say mm. in terms of um the way the party approaches history it's obviously been something that's been on their minds um, right from the beginning but i was just curious in terms of the recent moves that we've seen where it seems that in the last 10 15 years there was some amount of leeway i think to perhaps debate some moments of party history uh, but it seems that under xi jinping even those uh, modest spaces seem to be narrowing so i was just curious what you made of how uh, the current leader in china looks at this whole question of history and you see it as 
a big shift from the past or is it more of the same? I think there's definitely been a shift towards a much more controlled way of looking at history under Xi Jinping, the, the current uh, current leader. It's always been the case, actually for thousands of years, in a sense that history is political in uh, in China. One of the first court historians, uh, Sima Qian, uh, back in the Han Dynasty, um, actually found himself being severely punished for writing history that was insulting of the, of the emperor. So, you know, there is this long tradition of political history getting people into trouble. But in the case of Xi in particular, he's moved the dial, I think it's fair to say, from where it was, let us say, certainly 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago. At that point, it was certainly possible for scholars in particular to read, you know, alternative histories of the party, ones in which some of the leaders who had previously been sort of purged or uh, thrown into the kind of outer circles of the party might be somewhat reconsidered. And events such as the Cultural Revolution, you know, disastrous Cultural Revolution of the 1960s were acknowledged, you know, if not fully, at least as being mistakes that had been uh, that had to be overcome. But now there is a much stronger sense that actually even those quite, um, you know, sort of uh, cautious criticisms of mistakes in the party's history can't be permitted anymore. So that we gather that you know, new textbooks are being issued to schools, which basically don't even talk about the Cultural Revolution as a mistake. They talk about it as a period of kind of rethinking and re-education, which would come as a great surprise to all the people who were, you know, beaten up during that uh, that 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 period. So, yeah, I, I think certainly when one talks also to scholars working in China today, and obviously it has to be done with a certain amount of discretion, the sense that they are being much more constrained in talking about the party's history is very evident. It's it's a top-down edict, but it's having a real effect on the writing of history in China's own institutions today, for sure. Mm. Uh, in terms of uh, the Xi era, that's one big change. The other, of course, that I think people all over the world have been looking at is this whole idea of how uh, the party looks at the idea of national rejuvenation. Obviously, that's something people have been speaking about for 100 years. Um, but uh, Xi seems to have taken that to another level. So I was just... Uh, Curious as to what you made of the fact that very early on in his tenure, Xi Jinping settled on this idea of rejuvenation um, as a very key philosophy of how he was going to present his tenure at the helm. Uh, do you see that as a logical sort of next step after looking at trends that we saw in the Hu years? Or do you look at the way Xi looks at the whole question of nationalism, something you've written about in your book, uh, and the way that uh, the party should try and create a national identity uh, as, as something different. I think it is different. It does, of course, draw on what his predecessors did. I mean, if you look at the way in which a phrase that, I mean, you as a China expert, Anant, will know this idea of uh, Deng Xiaoping back in the 1980s, that China should, uh, you know, hide its light and bide its time. This was a kind of 16-character phrase that was used, you know, and it basically meant at that point that, you know, China should be concentrated on getting rich, securing its economy, uh, engaging with, with the world, you know, creating this huge economic miracle. But when Deng Xiaoping said that, he didn't intend that that should be the case forever. He meant that China should use that time to build up to a position where it could reveal itself to the world as a major new power. And I think Xi Jinping would feel that he is the leader who essentially has fulfilled that um, promise or that, that expectation from 
Deng Xiaoping. So if you look at the, the Party Congress speech that she gave back in 2017, that's one of the first explicit articulations of the idea that China is going to take this global role, that it's going to have influence around the world. And that is a large part of what, what you mentioned, the Chinese Renaissance is supposed to be about. In other words, it's not just a renaissance to itself. It's a renaissance in terms of the family of nations, the family of civilizations, whatever you want to call it uh, uh, in those, those terms. The difficulty I think they have now, and this is a question that I think is still in flux, is how far is China declaring that the great renaissance is something that really can only be experienced by people who are within China itself, and therefore the rest of the world has no right really to comment on it, and how far is it actually supposed to be a message about China changing the rest of the world? And these two things seem to me in some ways in, in conflict with each other. I'm not sure that China itself has yet what its answer is to that, that paradox. Mm. No, I mean, that. I think that really hits a nail on the head in terms of this contradiction we're seeing. Uh, on the one hand, it does seem that this whole approach from the, from the Xi uh, regime plays quite well at home. Uh, when they speak about China growing strong, China standing up. Uh, but at the same time, it doesn't really play very well externally uh, when you have the diplomats speaking out uh, and saying things that people may cheer at home. So it seems that that contradiction has become a lot more acute now than it ever was. Uh, and as you said rightly, it seems to be an ongoing debate in China in terms of how do they manage these kind of domestic uh, priorities versus how it would be seen abroad. Do you see any signs of how they plan to deal with that contradiction? And would it be too simplistic to say that the domestic would always kind of win over external kind of considerations? I don't think it's too simplistic at all. And I think that you've actually given a very astute assessment of what is at the heart in the end of the aspirations of the Chinese Communist Party and, and the state they run, which is domestic stability and prosperity, but also fear more than anything else of the system somehow being overturned. So that domestic consideration will always be most important. Um, I sometimes like to say, I mean, it's not inevitably true, but I think it's, it's broadly uh, true that, you know, when a Politburo member, Xi Jinping or, or one of his colleagues gets up in the morning, they're not so much worried about what the you know, Prime Minister of Japan is about to do as they're worried about what the party secretary of Hunan is about to do or the uh, you know, general secretary of Sichuan and then probably trying to stop him doing it as, as well. And I say him because the number of senior female politicians in China is very, very small. But, but, but let's nonetheless understand that international politics in some senses is in service of domestic politics. The two can't be entirely separated. So in that sense, yes, I think there is a debate going on that suggests that they are worried about how far favorability ratings in, about, for China have plummeted in the year of the pandemic. Um, you're speaking to me, I'm in England at the moment, you're speaking to me from India, and you'll be very aware that last year's Galwan clash has really heavily damaged China's reputation with the wider Indian public. Uh, you know, issues such as how far to take Chinese technology uh, in, in India, I think, have been quite uh, negatively affected by uh, the realization that the neighbor is a neighbor who is going to continue to be very problematic in, in, in military terms. And lots of other countries are beginning to have a sort of sense that maybe having China as a growing neighbor is problematic. So one reason we can tell that there clearly is some sort of reset, at least in words, going on is a speech made by Xi Jinping just 
couple of weeks ago, in which he talked about the need for China in the world to be, and his words were, I think, more humble and more, more lovable, or even you might translate it as, as more cute, which is a slightly weird way of thinking about it, kai. But, you know, this idea that basically China's diplomats have gone around the world essentially barking their heads off and telling their host countries where they've got it wrong has just not gone down at all well anywhere. And whether or not this marks more of a change of language than a change of policy, I think remains to be seen. But it is clear that the Chinese state, the party, does recognize that there is a real problem, not just in India, but all across Western Europe, in North America, in Japan, in parts of Southeast Asia. So not everywhere in the world, I'd say in Africa, Latin America, probably feelings towards China are less uh, uh, negative than perhaps in in, in uh, Asia and, and the global north. But that's still a pretty considerable part of the world that China has managed to alarm and mm -hmm. anger during the past year. That's true. Um, coming to um, China's broader global ambitions, uh, what would be, in your view, the best way to understand it? Uh, as you mentioned, you had this 2017 uh, speech by Xi Jinping, where he spoke about China moving to the center stage of the world. He spoke about uh, offering a China solution. There's been some debate. Is it is it about reshaping the current order to its favor? Is it about creating a new one? Uh, I, I thought in your book, China's Good War, uh, you made a fantastic case for how actually the rest of the world doesn't quite understand how they see themselves as being at the at the, at the site of creation of the present uh, liberal world order in many ways. Um, so what would be your assessment of what their broader goals are? Is it just to use the current order to, to better suit China's interests rather than replace it entirely? I think there's a dual track strategy, or at least dual track, possibly triple track strategy going on in, in China. Uh, one element is what you very kindly into ownership of the current international order. Uh, they wouldn't necessarily term it the liberal order. I think you know these days it is is dominated by liberal ideas since the really the demise of the Soviet Union more than more than thirty years ago. But on the other hand, they would argue, I think, very openly that many aspects of the international system of the moment suit them quite well. They've done pretty well in the World Trade Organization. They found it useful to be a major player in the UN uh, Security Council. Institutions such as the WHO, the World Health Organization, have obviously been very heavily influenced by China. China during the pandemic. So in terms of the existing world system, they're keen to make it clear that it has plenty of uses for them. And you mentioned a book I've previously written. What, one of the cases it makes is that China is keen to assert its central role in founding the United Nations, not just to assert its power, I mean, that is a large part of the reason, but also to assert its morality. In other words, it's trying to make the argument that not only are we a strong power in China, we are also a decent power, a good power, because we were amongst the founding nations that actually put together this structure, which still underpins the world. And of course, this was a much more powerful argument until a few months ago during the presidency of Donald Trump, because while Donald Trump was around and essentially rejecting many aspects of that international order, it made China look more like the status quo power. That's now harder to do now that Joe Biden has said, you know, America is back and is, is looking to create uh, uh, alliances in that um, uh, in that sort of uh, sort of sense. But we should also note that China is also doing a lot to try and shift 
global order as well, either by setting up new institutions that don't quite fit into the old system, like the Asia International Infrastructure Bank. Uh, it's a development bank. It's based out of Beijing. It looks a little bit like, you know, any other country's development bank, but it, it is not actually a huge amount of money that it disperses. But it's, it's there to show that Beijing can play that game on its own if it wants to. And in some other areas, including the area of defense, I mean, you know, as uh, India, of course, is, is very aware, the capacity these days of the People's Liberation Army Navy to project its blue water power, not just into the Pacific, but into the Indian Ocean. Now, that is a shift in global order. And although it's not necessarily a confrontational one at the moment, it does suggest that China is slowly, but inevitably, changing a whole variety of assumptions we had about whose neighborhood belongs to whom. Hmm. It is interesting when you when you mention uh, how China often invokes even today uh, the UN being the only order, especially when it's critical of, for instance, the notion of a rules based order that the US and the Quad uh, have been speaking about. Uh, how did you read the way they've sought to critique the Quad uh, being as 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 this uh, new sort of emergence or something outside the UN system? Seems to be the argument that they're making. Yes, I mean, the quad structure, the idea that India, Japan, Australia and the United States will come together in essentially kind of a defensive alliance against unnamed powers. But I think most people assume that China is really what they're defining it uh, against. That would seem logical anyway. Uh, this has got the Chinese uh, both angry and alarmed, and they've been speaking in ever more shrill tones uh, about what a terrible idea this this is. I think in a sense, the different reasons that have been put forward, I mean, this latest one, as you say, about being outside the UN structures, is really a function of the fact that China can't really articulate the major reason that they don't like it, which is that they hate the idea of other powers, particularly, you know, liberal democratic powers, coming together in formations that push back against China. So, you know, there are plenty of other non-UN entities, uh, economic entities in the region that have Chinese input and influence. Uh, RCEP, the Regional Common Economic Partnership, is a very good example of that. Um, it does have most of the major liberal powers in the region, Japan, Australia, South Korea within it. But of course, unlike the United States, it has China also at the center. So China doesn't go around complaining that RCEP doesn't fit into those sorts of uh, models. So there's a certain sort of instrumentalism that when it comes to security in the US, that's felt to be illegitimate in this context. When it comes to economics and China, then suddenly it's okay. Hmm. Uh, on the slightly related question of this whole sort of um, discourse battle that seems to be happening between the US or the West on one hand and China on the other, it does seem to be that China seems a little less defensive than it perhaps was in the past about putting forward its own model, its own values. Uh, the way it's been speaking out against, uh, for instance, ideas of universal values, etc. Uh, do you think that perhaps uh, more than the West realizes that this message perhaps has some resonance, say, in the global South or elsewhere, this idea of non-interference, the idea that the West shouldn't lecture countries on what to do? Is it that, do, do you think that they feel that they have a receptive audience, perhaps in, in Latin America, Africa, even elsewhere in Asia, to a degree that isn't really uh, seen in the West? I think that's true, but just as the West underestimates how powerful that discourse from China can be, I think China's running the danger of overestimating it. Let me say that I think that an awful lot of countries that are interested in Chinese investment and have some genuine gratitude for what has been produced, whether it's COVID vaccines or investment in 5G, 
don't necessarily wholesale believe that that actually makes China meritorious in its own right. Let me use the example of uh, of Argentina. Argentina is a country that, you know, I think is, is well known, has been going through a whole variety of financial crises really for 20 years or, or more. And um, it's, uh, it's broadband and internet, for instance, very, very patchy in, in many ways. So it would appear that there may be a significant chance of China investing in uh, 5G there. Well, that might give China, providing, you know, Chinese-based uh, technology, well, that might give China an advantage on the grounds that once you lock people into a particular technological path, you can keep them dependent on it. It helps Argentina, perhaps, because cheap, subsidized, perhaps illegally subsidized uh, Chinese um, uh, 5G uh, is much cheaper than anything anyone else has come up with. But is it going to stop Argentina being a democracy? Is it going to stop Argentina having a very lively, free media? Is it going to stop Argentina having Argentinian politics? Is it going to, you know, in other words, Argentina is not going to become some kind of clone of China because it's taking Chinese money and at the moment feels angry with the West and the United States. So I think we have to understand that, yes, China's influence is important. But for many countries in Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, it's more because those countries actually want to balance between choices and they would be as disconcerted to have the choice of only China as they are to feel that they only have the choice of the World Bank or the Western organizations, as was the case in the past. Hmm. Finally, uh, coming closer to home and coming to India, you did mention the Galwan Valley clash in June 2020 and the fact that it's had such a profound impact on how many people in India look at the relationship, which does seem to be at a kind of a crossroads. Uh, but going beyond even the boundary, uh, looking at China's broader, longer-term ambitions in Asia, the fact that perhaps one might say they see themselves as being the dominant power in Asia, and the fact that India has deep anxieties about that, would you say, looking at the long view, these are fundamentally conflicting visions uh, of how India and China see Asia emerging? And how do you think both of them going forward will be able to manage this, even leaving aside the boundary issue for a second? I think that both countries do have strong visions of the next 5, 10, 20 years. But I do think they're fundamentally different visions, and I don't think they necessarily need to clash with each other. I would say, and I'm, you know, perhaps in our last question, uh, taking advantage by giving up an overly broad view, but I would say that broadly speaking, India's geostrategic sense in its own backyard is still quite defensive in many ways. Yes, there's a threat, obviously, from Pakistan and the West. There's a concern about excessive Chinese influence in some of the neighboring countries, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, and, and so forth, Nepal. But at the same time, it seems to me that the ultimate interest that India still has is in securing its own uh, domestic political system. Uh, it doesn't have, I think, huge influence, uh, so interest in influence that Indianizes, uh, you know, large parts of the rest of, of, of Asia. I think China is not seeking to turn other parts of the region into China by any means, but it is seeking, I think, a much more explicit influence policy through the um, the vehicles that it has available, which include the Belt and Road Initiative. You know, there's no real Indian equivalent to that, I, I would say, um, through the fact that it can innovate in technology and then roll that technology out on a commercial basis. And also because it has huge security interests that to some extent cut across those of others in a very visible way, you know, leaving aside Galwan, which is you know one particular dispute, there's also the South China Sea. And that is, of course, something that brings China into potential conflict, whether rhetorical or, or military, with many of its Southeast Asian neighbors. So in the end, the kind of balance in terms of vision of the future 
and proposition for defensive security is just very different, I think, in the minds of people making plans in New Delhi and people making plans in, in Beijing. No, that makes sense. Um, and thank you so much again for your time. I intentionally kept it broad. I hope that wasn't difficult for you or vague for you, but I just wanted to thank you so much. We wanted to try and give a broad sweep of all of these issues uh, on July 1st. And I think you've really helped us with that. Not at all. And uh, no, delighted to have taken part, uh, Anant, and uh, very glad to have had this conversation with you for, for the Hindu. It's been a pleasure to, uh, pleasure to speak. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.